Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have now entered the house of mystery. With your hosts. And you are back in the House of Mystery. I'm your host today, surprise, surprise, Dave North Martino. And on the other side of the country is the great Alan R. Warren. How you doing, Al? Uh, you just woke me up. What do you, <laughs> <laughs> what do you, what do you want? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wake up, Al. Wake yeah. up. What do you want? This I'm is sure. a mutiny. I've taken over. Yeah, well, it's all right, because I need, I need my beauty rest. <laughs> yeah, you need, you need some sleep. Yeah, I do. Get you. Get you a, a nice little bear to sleep with. And, well, you, get, you have your dogs. So. I have my dogs. That's enough hair. You sleep with your dogs. Enough, <laughs> enough. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> that's enough of that shedding. You know, it's springtime. They shed a lot. Yeah. That's right. And my cat, too. I'm having that problem. <laughs> well, anyway, today we have a fantastic writer who I've been reading for a long time. Um, his newest novel is called The Rock of Bop. A Seattle Bop Mystery, book three. Uh, let's uh, welcome Reb McGrath to the program. Hey, Reb, how you doing? Doing fine, David. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, no problem. Well, we'll see if you say that at the end. That's what Al always says, so I'm going to steal that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let's start in the beginning. You know, How did you discover that you wanted to write? 
You know, that goes back to university, and it was a mm. curious path. I mean, I fell in love with Lord Byron's work and wanted to be Lord Byron, have a swashbuckling romantic life. So I wrote poetry and ended up having in the school paper my own column. I published weekly. I produced and directed and acted in uh, three different plays. Oh, wow. And then I moved up to uh, Toronto for reasons that are probably clear to everybody at that time, um, <laughs> back in the late, uh, you know, the 60s. Um, and there in Toronto, I continued writing poetry for a while until I drifted towards uh, freelance journalism. I, I wrote book reviews and personality profiles. And I was actually doing well at it. I had a syndicated column. Uh, this would have been in the mid-70s before I realized that I wanted to come back to the States. And I found when I moved out to San Francisco that none of my writing experience gave me any any cred in the industry. I couldn't get any any gigs to write for the newspapers. They basically told me I'd have to go out to the suburbs and work for a little weekly uh, gazette or whatever. And I said, no, I'm, if I'm going to do, do anything here rather than start from scratch again, I'd always toyed with the idea of writing a novel. I began trying to write a novel. And three, four years later, uh, I ended up uh, with a completed book called The Suiting, my first published book. Well, did you um, find that doing uh, that type of work uh, do you feel it made you more of a, an efficient writer when it came to novels and, um, uh, and, and other types of, uh, of fiction work? Oh, definitely. Uh, I learned I had, I, I was working in tight spaces. I mean, some of the profiles I did were a thousand words long, so I had to learn how to structure them, get to the point very quickly. And uh, I also was working, I had a big influence on my life. I, I worked for about eight years in uh retail copywriting uh, in, in direct mail once again. And you've got to get, get your hook set in the, in, in the opening sentence because you've only got two or three sentences before readers move on to the next page. So these things influenced me. Well, I would assume, you know, it sounds like that would, uh, doing copywriting and having to be so, um, you know, so immediate in your language, that, that must have really translated to fiction. Oh, it did. Uh, that all-important influence. Now, in retail copywriting at that time, you've got a picture like a 40-, 50-page book of ads with 12 different ads on the page. Mm -hmm. You're competing with the other dozen ads, and you only have like a, a sec basically a sentence to be creative in. Then you've got to get into listing fabrics, all of these legal things that must appear in, uh, in, in, in direct mail advertising. So I became very, very much focused on writing compelling sentences to draw people in. Well, what was it like, you know, you talk about the suiting, and you won an award for that. Um, what was it like getting your fir first book deal and, and getting an award? Gosh, that, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, to give you the best answer I can give you, first of all, it was a great honor. I mean, I was, I was thrilled by it, but it soon became apparent that the award itself didn't translate into any great difference in terms of my uh, sellability for an agent uh, at that point. Um, I had started off with Tor two books and was like many other writers. After a couple of books, I was I was I found myself dropped, and we moved over mm -hmm. to changed agents. We moved to uh, Dell, but despite the Stoker Award and the good reviews I'd gotten, uh, the only deal we were able to get was uh, going into uh, the new line for Dell, which was uh, the Abyss line was paperback. So I went from hardcover to paperback. Took a loss in prestige. I was tied up for years on a 
two books that I was writing under intense uh, deadline pressure, and I don't think I did my best work. So the Stoker Award, it was an honor, but it didn't translate into anything really useful for me. Mm. It's it's tough out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Well, uh, now, um, after that, um, I think you started going into uh, the Boss McTavern uh, series, and that's where it, the, the first was that that the um, the, the first kind of um, inklings of that character and that story happened after uh, that that four book deal. No, it was interesting genesis there. I went into after the two book deal with uh, Dell. I went into a long, long period, almost uh, fifteen or twenty years, what I call the desert. No matter mm. what I proposed, no matter what I wrote, nobody was biting. And one of the main issues that people had with my work was that I was doing what I insist are not novellas, but short novels, about 40 to 50,000 words. And nobody was touching. I did the first draft of a Boss McTavern book called Southern Scotch was written during that long period. And I ended up rewriting that once I started self-publishing with Amazon. I said, OK, I could take the skills that I've gained since I wrote that produce a, an even more tightly knitted uh, story that's better told and it might be of more more appeal to readers. Well, that period of time, I mean, it must have been extremely difficult. Um, how did you uh, persevere through that time and, and, continue, and continue writing? Dave, it was sheer stubbornness um, <laughs> it, uh, and belief that I had the talent. Uh, I just refused to say die. But... Mm. Difficult. I mean, I had gone from a period now when the suiting came out, I was working in a bookstore in Atlanta, uh, Oxford Books, great bookstore, and people would come in to see me. I got to meet all of these incredible writers through their PR people with major publishers. Uh, but this changed uh, as I went on and was unable to. OK, after this, after let me see what's the second after the suiting, Makoto came next. As soon as I went into the, the two book deal with Dell, I found myself almost like persona non grata. I wasn't taken seriously by the people, aspiring novelists that I worked with. And uh, it, it was difficult. So I don't know. During that period, I uh, turned out six or seven short novels that I eventually went on to publish on, uh, on Amazon. But again, time after time, no matter what I did, I would send out feelers and everything. And it's no too short to this, to that. I call that the the curse of the tutus. It's too, too <laughs> <difficult>. <laughs> well, you know. I'm wondering too. You know, with with short novels, and it seems like um, you got new life with uh, with the advent of of the ebook and Kindle. Is uh, did that did that really kind of uh, kind of inject something uh, new and, and fresh into your career? Yes, it did. I mean, it, it restored my sense of myself as a writer. I made peace with the fact that many other writers who are publishing with traditional publishers don't accept the legitimacy mm. of writers who publish ebooks or ebooks themselves. I mean, I get that. It's uh, nothing I can say is going to change that, except that wonderful books in the past and the present have been published uh, independently and been, you know, terrific works and gone on to do well. So, uh, on the other hand, it, there's, it's a it does pose a problem since most agents and many publishers, not all, but will not even consider publishing something that's previously appeared in in, in the ebook. What got you uh, into uh, mystery? 
What was that draw to, to go from mystery and crime fiction? Well, the draw had always been there from the start, Dave. I, uh, when I wrote the, the suiting, I considered it a mystery with a supernatural twist. Now, I don't know in terms of years or anything, I don't know how this uh, parallels the movie, what was it, Angel Heart with uh, Mickey Rourke? Mm. Yeah. Might have been around the same time, but it was, that was basically a mystery with a supernatural twist. And it got sold as horror. And by contract, I was committed to write horror. After two, I was begging my agent to let me pitch a mystery, which I'd started. It actually went on 15 or 20 years later to turn into the second Boss McTavern book, The Alcatraz Correction. Um, mm. But once again, I was told, no, just give us two more horror novels. Well, after four horror novels, I was officially a horror writer. But the mystery had appealed to me from the start. So it wasn't something that just came out of the blue. I'm fascinated by constant like issues coming up. Just when you think you've solved something or drawn a bead on something, have it going off in a different direction, that has always fascinated me. Well, you mentioned Boss McTavern. Who is he? Can you give us a little bit about him? Yeah. Boss McTavern was uh, my take many years later on a famous TV show called Have Gone Will Travel mm. uh, with Richard Boone playing a character named Paladin who, you know, goes on and takes independently, takes on cases that appeal to him. And now Boss McTavern began as a Southern Scottish athlete who crashed in the South. And as I put it in my pitch for it, uh, Boss had a fatal attraction for the South, which failed to return his affection. Uh, he's in the wrong place one night, is half-blinded, beaten, scarred, everything, comes back years later to get the men who did this to him. But he evolves into a paladin-type character uh, in San Francisco, uh, running an outfit he calls Boss Corrections. Hmm. So instead of revenge, he seeks to correct things that he feels need to be rebalanced. So he was a six-foot-two, rail-thin, southern Scott, and the pitch, I think that one of the big, I, I thought one of the biggest appeals would be his accent. He's uh, kind of kind of a half Scottish, half Southern accent that he's made all his own. Hmm. So it's kind of like half half Red Butler and, uh, <laughs> and half something else. <laughs> well, you also, um, you know, with the Seattle Bot Mysteries, you had it was kind of a spinoff, right, from uh, from from Boss McTavern. And uh, with, with DB, a.k.a. Chief Armstrong, uh, who, who is this character? He's like, there's, there's definitely kind of a uh, little bit of a, a difference between, between these characters. There is, and I think we're getting into the creation of a Us Corrections a Seattle Bop universe here. Hmm. At the uh, DB starts off, when we first meet him in the uh, second Boss McTavern mystery, he's a, kind of a young, brilliant uh, hacker, thief, just a, a bad hombre, and he's uh, very, very height challenged. He's uh, five foot four, so he's <laughs> got a lot of anger and a lot of rage inside him. And Boss takes him under his wing, uh, keeps him out of jail, and takes him on eventually as a partner. Now, through the course of just as Boss evolves into a more humane character over the, the next three books, DB also grows. He's fascinated by he, he looks up to Boss. I mean, he revere's yeah. him. And eventually, at the end of the fourth Boss McTavern book, he sent to Seattle to, to run a new division of Seattle Bop. Well, it actually becomes Seattle Bop when he gets there. So we meet him, he changes, takes a new name, becomes Chief Armstrong. But by that time, by the end, by the time the series will, will have ended, DB will with him for 
three Boss McTavern novels and eventually uh, Seattle Bop Mysteries. And I think there's a real, very strong uh, character arc there that it's it's time to say goodbye after the fifth book, but we we trace him from punk thug to uh, tall walking five foot four dude. <laughs> and he's he's taller than I am. <laughs> he is. Well, he you is. Think he is. How, how tall are you? Well, I am five foot two and three quarters or something like that. Yeah, I, I rounded the. the, the, the I, I'd round it to 5'3", but the nurse told me that I wasn't quite 5'3". That's when he's wearing heels. Only on, yeah, only with heels. He <laughs> <laughs> like, pads his shoes with insoles, and he has a, a, a height-adjusting uh, chair in his office so that he can move <laughs> himself to, to meet the, the eyes of anybody he's seated with. Yeah. <laughs> I've never done that. I've, I've, I've got to try that. Hey, it's, uh, it works for him. <laughs> yeah. He's been, now, he's been a lot of fun to be with, and it's. Hmm. I, I think the Seattle Bob series brings something new to the genre. I would call it, instead of hard-boiled, I, 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 re, I regard it as glitter noir. Uh, it's hmm. got a little bit of razzmatazz, it's got some humor, and it's yes. not just a, a drunken hero with his eyes, you know, eyes on the bars. Well, with humor, you know, you talk talk about, like, you know, people who do stand-up and stuff, um, you know, they, they need, like, comedic timing. Did you feel that uh, to do uh, some of the humor in the books that you need to kind of have some sort of maybe a timing in your prose? I'm not sure I understand the question. Could you throw that at me again? Yeah, well, no, I'm just wondering if, if you know, there's, uh, with, with comedians, they have to have kind of a form of timing, a, a rhythm, let's say, um, to how they deliver um, a joke. And with humor in books, I was just wondering if you think there's, you know, maybe a rhythm or a timing that goes along with uh, making something funny when, when you're writing it out. Definitely. I'm not sure. I mean, I, I know what you're saying. and I agree with you. I'm not sure that I have it down to um, down to a science where I, I, can, mm. I can explain it, but I'm very aware of timing. And I'm also very aware that for, for something like humor to work, especially dealing in the third person as I do in the, the way these books are written, it's essential that DB not always be on top of every joke. I mean, he's <laughs> sometimes <laughs> jokes on him and that's where the humor yep. comes from. He eventually accepts it, but he's not always aware at the start that he's a joke's being played on him. So he's kind of a straight man in a way. Yes. Hmm. Now I'm wondering with, with boss and DB and, and, and you have a very colorful uh, cast the characters in your stories. Do you, uh, how do you experience those characters? Do you do you hear them? Do you, uh, I'm just trying to find out if you're hearing voices. <laughs> but I'm just wondering if it, if you hear them, if if you have an inner monologue, uh, if you hear the rhythm of language as you're writing. Yeah, in fact, uh, I write longhand, and I'm very aware as I'm writing and feeling the you know the pencil on the the pages of my moleskin notebooks. Hmm. I'm very aware. I hear the voices in my head as I write. Sometimes characters will tell me to back up if I move on too quickly. It's like, hey, I'm not finished yet. <laughs> Add some more. I hate I hate it when I have to kill kill them off too. I've killed off a few major characters lately. Have you ever killed off a character? I'm stealing Al's question here, but <laughs> have you ever killed off a character who uh, who's based on somebody that you didn't like? Yes. We don't have to tell anybody. And nobody's, no. we won't that, tell that anybody. Was, I, did, I did that more 
I was more prone to do that back in the, the unhappy Holy years. <laughs> we had some pretty, pretty splashy uh, exits for characters I didn't like. Mm, yes. I know because I've read some of those books. And, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I do some of the behind-the-scenes stuff. So, But we, we won't talk about that. <laughs> Please, let's let that go. It's funny. Well, um, you know, I remember, you know, one of your books. Um, well, actually, you know, b before I go there, I, I wanted to ask you, about, you mentioned moleskin notebooks. I think you have a very interesting uh, process for um, uh, creating a book. Um, and, and you're using, could, could you elaborate on that? Sure. Uh, this won't be for everybody, but uh, I start, I'll, use, I'll end up with uh, but if, even for the short books that I'm doing of anywhere from these days, my books are going up to 50, 60,000 words maximum. I'll end up with a dozen moleskin notebooks. And mm. I always start the same way. I'll start off with one of a particular color and uh, usually white to get me going. And just spend a full notebook just asking questions. Uh, typical question just to pick one out of a hat. How am I going to handle it? taking two characters from Seattle, moving them to Tucson, without spending a, a fortune of time on backstory. Pages on that over the next year. When I, and also, uh, I, I would ask myself, to, are we going to reference the characters in Seattle, Bob, or is there a way that I can just make it as a clean, a clean start? This is the sort of thing that I'll be spending the most time on. Uh, little pages of character profiles as I bring new characters in. When the first book, Notebook, is finished, I'll spend another notebook where I actually begin fooling around with the outline just putting down necessary scenes, not even in any particular order. It's just, I know I have to have a scene set in Tombstone, for example. What are they doing in Tombstone? Question, question, question. Mm. And eventually, after I've filled two or three notebooks, I'll have the confidence to start fiddling around with opening lines. Just, I might, I might write 50, I might write 75. I think the most I ever did was 86. And when I get the one that is right, usually then I'll feel the itch where it's time to start writing. Take out a different, a different color notebook and begin the first, uh, the first chapter. Well, you also used, I believe, uh, Dragon Naturally Speaking for a while to um, get your um, uh, prose into the uh, uh, computer so that, because uh, since you do write a lot of the stuff out by hand, um, how, how did that work for you? It was working fine. Uh, there were some glitches as we went along. I mean, eh. I wish I was using it. The short answer to your question is I can't use it now because I had a complete computer crash that erased everything that I oh, had. No. So I don't even have the program now. Wow. Uh, I might look into getting it again because I, I feel that I, I found my way around the glitches is basically to examine every page or two as I go along so I don't have four or 500 pages to go through, like, you know, little glitches that Dragon will naturally occur. It was very handy, and I, I could uh, transcribe a novel far more quickly. Instead of like typing, I might be able on an average day, I think the most I'm really capable of typing from my handwritten notes is 10 pages. With wow. Dragon, I could do uh, 20 or 30 pages. Dearly. Well, you seem to, um, I, think, I think I've seen you, uh, you go to in internet cafes and coffee shops and libraries to do some of your writing. Uh, do, you, you must like to be out. You must, do you need the hustle and bustle? to write or can you can you write in quiet how does that work for you i used to need the hustle and bustle and also the uh i didn't have internet so i, I relied on their their wi-fi and 
Wi-Fi has no longer been an issue, and I've been able to get more attractive uh, home digs. So I've actually been very, very content with writing at home. Uh, so that's been a major change in the past couple of years. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's been a big change for uh, for all of us. Yeah, I mean, change. <laughs> it's been or, crazy. Change or stop. Give it up. I'm not ready to give it up. So mm-hmm. got to do it at home. So I do enjoy the quiet. Uh, the building itself that I'm in is very, very quiet. The internet is, and it will be free internet when I move to uh, Tucson in, in the apartment. So uh, that's not likely to change. But I'll probably spend more time, like force myself to take a break now and then, just to get out and meet people a little bit in the cafe. Hmm. Well, it helps to recharge. Yeah. Definitely, and and uh, kind of uh, is that is that how you uh, get your characters through the people that you see and when you're out and about. Some of it, and you see and you'll hear the darndest things when you're when you're out in in public. I I can't imagine. I don't know how people do it who do all of their their work at home and don't get out and interact with people. I mean, this is where we learn from people who are younger than us and at different stations of life. We learn things that can be incredibly useful uh, to our work. Hmm. Oh, absolutely. And, it, you know, in, in your work, you you do a lot of, with language, you do a lot of wordplay and literary illusion. Um, do you feel that the language and prose is as important as the plot and your characters? I do. Uh, it's something, I mean, I... How can I explain it? It's not like I, when, I, when I'm working, I never have the urge or the uh, voice whispering in my ear, it's time to get clever or cute here. It's not like that. I just find myself playing. It's, it's my nature to play with language as I write. Mm-hmm. And I like this. Some of the writers that I, I like that uh, aren't with us any longer, so I can mention them. There was a wonderful mystery writer named uh, Lawrence Sanders who wrote The Deadly Sins and The, the, the Commandment books. He was a brilliant stylist who wrote in uh, very, very successful, highly commercial books. Nobody ever complained that he was too, too stylistic. Uh, so I, I look for this. I mean, I love it. If I find somebody who can bring a scene to life or just add a little bit of color to the page, uh, I'm in heaven. I'm in reading heaven if I find that. Well, you know, it, it reminds me of, you know, when I read Mastery, which became Monster Time uh, later when you republished it, and then I read Angel Kiss, uh, and, I, and I think I've told you this before, um, you, you kind of an Angel Kiss, it, it was, I, I thought it was very brilliant. You were able to pare down your writing to, I guess, you know, make it more palatable for the mainstream, but you still retained uh, your colorful voice. And um, was was that a natural outgrowth of of your of your writing, or did you do it consciously uh, for the market? I didn't do it consciously for the market. I think uh, let me see, mastery. Yeah, mastery was the longer book. Mm. Took a lot of research. I thought it was going to kill me. I mean, we were writing mastery. <laughs> and this was before the internet, computers at that yeah. point. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey everyone, 
I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We were writing pages to meet deadlines and faxing them at work. The job I had in the bookstore faxing them off to Dell, like, you know, as I got them. So I wanted something simpler, basically, to give myself a little bit of a break, take some of the pressure off me, and to have a little bit more fun in the writing. And I think the simplicity is you're looking at was so the, the simplicity evolved from that rather than mm. my my decision to to write a more mainstream book i see it's interesting because i i found it very um you know i i kind of used that as a template for kind of paring down my writing a bit um while still retaining retaining my voice and it was just very influential oh thank you i uh i think rather than a highly literary or highly elusive style of writing some of the color that is you know, maybe a little bit stylistic a little bit mm. colorful in one of the boss mctavin books i think it is the i believe it was the alcatraz correction he's sitting outside a yes that was it he was sitting outside a, a hospital ward and he's just looking at the rain outside and he compares it to a, a robert mitchum type of sky and yeah that's uh that to me, I mean, that felt very natural. I didn't have to strain for that. It's not like I was straining for the high notes or anything. It just came out very naturally. Mm -hmm. That was Boss putting it. That's a great book. Oh, um, thank you. All the books in the series are great. Um, and, you know, I remember reading through those books. Um, one of them focuses on uh, some of the retail experience that you had and shoplifting yes. that was happening. And, Seattle uh, did. Yes. Okay. And... Uh, I, I uh, some some of the Aikido that you studied ended up 
in the book. Um, so it, it seems like you, you really like to draw from uh, your own experiences and put that into your fiction. Yeah, this goes back to, well put, this goes back to your, your question about, you know, going out, getting out and about, uh, hmm. not just to recharge, but to be exposed to what is going on. Uh, nobody could have made up the scenes that I put into Seattle Red about organized retail crime and shoplifting are things that I've seen for years, and mm. they've never been worse than they are in the city. Uh, uh, people think I'm exaggerating, but I literally, I mean, I see people walking into a, into a pharmacy and just bold as brass, just walking straight over to the beer cooler, grabbing two 12-packs, marching right out the door past the security guard. I mean, this is happening. And I, I wouldn't have known it if I didn't see it, if I hadn't seen it rather firsthand. Yeah, it's crazy. It's, it's very interesting. Did you have to do, uh, besides your actual experience, did you have to do any research uh, to to uh, fill in the gaps in the book, or were there just enough experiences for, for you to well, yeah. uh, create a novel about that? No, I could have, if, if all I was doing, I could have written a novel if all I were doing was taking the, the scenes that I had seen and just, you know, staging them and staggering them throughout the book. I wouldn't have had to do any research, but I wanted to get into the the growth and the spread of organized retail crime what separates it from shoplifting uh that that takes research all mm -hmm. of my books require research uh extensive research before i sit down to write except for except for the things where i'll find that things i was unaware that i needed to research and that's where i leave the typical blanks you know fill in describe the train mm -hmm. and just keep writing without getting bogged down in the stuff that i don't know let's work with what i do well, you're a big fan of trains, too. Yes, I am. And I've mm. got a doozy of a train ride coming up in the uh, the House of Bop. Yes. It's the, uh, the one that's coming out uh, one. this year. Deals with one of my favorite, uh, my, my favorite trains, the greatest of them all, is the uh, 20th Century Limited. And we have a serial killer whose one obsession is that particular train. And they have a heck of a way of, of roping him in in the novel staging a uh, inventing a train that resembles it, a portion of a train that resembles the 20th century limited so I, I had a lot of fun with that i books on the century i've spent hours and hours online like looking at the cars uh, seeing how the porters dress what do the menus look like what food were they serving i had to get all of this down wow so well, and that um uh... Your love of trains kind of came in, I think, in mastery and then just went on in, into many of your books. Well, it did. You had the uh, train ride on mastery. Um, I wrote a book, one of the, I think one of the best novels I wrote, short novels I wrote when I was in the desert was a little book called uh, Nobility about mm. uh, yes. a broken down, a broken down guy. I, I envisioned John Travolta in the part, uh, just broken down guy who's on a train meets a woman who turns out to be his something like an angel, but not exactly an angel. And they tackle a, take on a gang of uh, pickpockets. It's a wonderful little book. Yes, it is. Suspenseful, romantic, and uh, got some good wordplay in it too. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one where we have the, uh, the, not the acrostics, the abba dabba dabba, the sentences that go mean the same, like both backwards and forward. Oh yes, and acrostic. Having, I, I remember some writer. Um, I can't think of her name. She used the term acrostic eye, and I always like that. <laughs> yeah, for, for 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 something. But she she used she used that term. I think it was Starhawk. <laughs> back in my uh, back in my hippie days, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's um, 
Yeah, that's the, yeah, the, and it's an acrostic or anagram. I'm just drawing a blank here and I yeah. can't think of it. It's the, the backward and forward. It would be like, oh, ABBA, A-B-B-A. So yeah. these, these word configurations begin appearing in the windows and everything. And uh, it's, uh, gosh, I got to go back and reread that. It's uh, one of my favorites. Hmm. It is a good book. And then, you know, also The Gathering Magic of Snow, which is, uh, I, I called it a McGrathian masterpiece, right? <laughs> but it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's very autobiographical. And you, you brought in a lot of stuff. And you can see it from, from your other books. Yeah, that was the, oh, it was the, the Vanishing Magic of Snow. The Vanishing yes. Magic. Oh, The Vanishing Magic of Snow, yes. My and, memory. Gosh. And wordplay in the uh, title itself because mm. it takes on a different meaning. I mean, the snow melts and vanishes, but also the only hope they have to, uh, in the course of the novel, this guy's salvation depends on vanishing to go back in time to fix something that he left undone or did totally totally botched uh, back in the 70s. But it was that was based on my years in Toronto and uh, some of the people that I'd actually met, like Margaret Atwood and Leonard Cohen. And uh, I figured, you know, I just wanted to. Uh, oh, and there was a famous magician that has uh, Sunny Storm based on Doug Henning. I don't know if you've ever hmm. heard of him. Yes. That he, was, he was very, very famous at one point, but he fell under the, the this is true. I met him in Grossman's Tavern. One of the most charismatic people I've ever met had a brilliant career and he fell under the manipulative thumbs of the Maharishi Yogi who bled him of every penny he had and left him a, just a totally ruined man. Wow. So I drew that into the novel. Yeah, that probably, I think, I don't know if that, I don't know if that book even sold a single copy, but uh, I'm proud of it. Yeah, it was a great book and it's Thank very, you. very interesting. Yeah, so so people should should uh, listeners should go out and get that book right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, vanishing magic of snow. Uh, it is now that's part of we have the in terms of the offerings for readers we have the okay so the Boss McTavern mysteries there were four there are yep. about to be four entries for Seattle Bob mysteries uh, going on a fifth book the Wrath of Bob which will come out next year concluding the series but then we have the Vanishing Magic of Snow, Nobility, and a couple of others. Uh, Caesar's Ghost come under a series that uh, uh, just uh, one, uh, wonders. They're independent reads. Uh, the Fast and the Furies is the name of the series. People on the run from their karma. Hmm. When, when you wrote uh, the Boss series, right, you were um, in, uh, is it North Carolina? I began, okay. No, oh, I was Charlotte. Charlotte. Yep, Charlotte. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. you went to Seattle, uh, and first, you're yes. you're working yes, and, and you're working toward uh, another move. Um, are you going to create fiction for that um, uh, for, for that new area? Yes, I'm gonna. I haven't come up with a name for the Tucson something. I can't repeat the Bop. That Seattle yeah. Bop is going to stay. That's its own series. Um, but it, they've kind of evolved in an interesting way. It's like the Boss McTavern series just kind of gave me that feeling, that, hey, it's time. This guy has gone through total hell. I mean, he almost mm. died. Uh, his one of, in the course of one of his books, his fiance is murdered. Uh, he loses friends. But at the end, he has fallen in love and is going to get married. So we make the segue then into Seattle Bop with uh, Dirty Boy, who is now Chief Armstrong. And I found myself at this point, he also 
has gone through his own personal uh, journey and he's getting to the point where he's getting closer to getting married. So, gosh, does this mean that I, I have something against marriage? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it was definitely time after all these years that I've spent with him. Hey, give the guy a break. Let him have hmm. Let him have his life. We're going to take two people. I have a character that I love, this this Russian character who has joined them. Uh, I'm going to have him give him a star, at least a co-starring role in the new series. Oh, I see. So it's going to be another spinoff. It is. Yep. And uh, I couldn't. It was a question of logistics. Uh, I definitely have to move. I mean, it's time to move on. Tucson is calling to me because it would be it would be very hypocritical of me to, to continue writing about Seattle. I've grown really disenchanted with this town, and I can't. The impetus to, to set further books in the, in the city isn't there. Hmm. And the fifth book, the one I mentioned, the last book in the series, they're actually they set off on a vacation, and they're going to end up in uh, in Arizona, a couple of towns I've invented, and uh, from there to Tombstone. So we've already set the stage for Arizona. We're just going to move it over to, to Tucson. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Um, other genres, are you going to stay in mystery or are you planning on experimenting with anything else? I'm going to stay with with mystery for at least for the time being, um, but I want to keep my mind open. Uh, I'll do one or two of the books set in Tucson, then it may be time if it's, if it's time to take a break. Uh, as you know, I, I took a break. I spent a large part of the past year working on a tiny, 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 book of uh, uh, translations of one Latin poet who's pretty difficult. And I ended up with a 55-page book that I'm, I love. I'm, I'm as proud of that as of anything I've written. Yeah, sex pro. Yeah. Uh, a jukebox celebration of Sextus Propertius. That's right. Well, who, who is he? He was a Roman poet, uh, would have been at the, oh gosh, he was writing at the same time as Augustus Caesar. Okay. So, and you've written about Caesar before. I wrote, I wrote of Julius Caesar uh, coming back. Oh, Augustus uh, Caesar, yes, correct. So his nephew. Uh, but Julius Caesar, I wrote about his spirit coming back. and uh, That's right. Determined to find Cleopatra and uh, find his place in the White House. That, that takes place in Caesar's ghost. He gets reincarnated. Every time he gets close, he gets killed again. So it's kind of dead again with a Caesarian twist. <laughs> um, but there... So, yeah, I felt just the call to do that. So when the call comes, I mean, if in, in one case, to write a book about Julius Caesar, uh, his ghost, or to write a book of uh, translations of uh, seven translations of short poems by this poet, I just follow the, wherever the voice leads me. Well, with with um, the book on Latin, what, what drew you to, to that? Well, I've loved Latin poetry since uh, I worked in Oxford Bookstore. It grew. It started as a mystery. I, I, I just couldn't mm. understand. I mean, I would be looking at the classic shelf, and these were, to me, the, those that are published by the low classics are like literal translations, word-for-word translations, basically. They're almost unreadable to somebody who isn't using them as like a, a prop to, uh, or a trot, rather, to, uh, to understand the Latin, or the Penguin translations are, are usually okay with prose, but for poetry, they're pretty boring, too. Mm. And I kept wondering... Why, you know, this language must have been alive. It must have. There must have been something there for readers two thousand years ago. Uh, they didn't have jukeboxes, of course, but maybe <laughs> the feeling was there. It was that kind of a rocking sensation. It's like, hey, this is better than what my mom and dad are reading. I mean, this is wild. This is alive. So I, I, I wondered for the Latin book. Propertius has been very difficult because 
his thing. He was a divided soul. He had he wrote passionate love poetry, but then he would take in the course of a passionate love poem, he would intersperse like uh, the names of two or three dozen gods that we would need a, a classical dictionary to figure out who the devil they are these days. Mm. And I said, wow, okay, that worked maybe 2,000 years ago, but what, what if we were to take the gods out, just remove the names of the gods and everything and treat these as passionate, love-rocking love poems? I wondered if I could bring them to life in a, in a fun way that uh, even students who think Latin poetry or Latin literature is boring could I show them that it's not? That was the challenge. Yeah, it's very, it's very fascinating. Do you think you're going to find some of that uh, seeping into your fiction? That's hard to say. Uh, it could. I mean, yeah, I'm open. I might eventually do another if this takes. And I've already had one very positive reaction. Uh, an email I got yesterday from a highly placed uh, academic. Uh, Wow. who wants to refer this book to her students and to uh, to her colleagues. So if word spreads and it's there, I could pursue something else, uh, another jukebox mm -hmm. celebration, uh, maybe even of a different uh, different writer, uh, as to whether it could work into my fiction. I don't know if there's some mystery. Almost anything can be the subject for a mystery. Uh, even Josephine Tay's Daughter of Time, you've got a hero who's bedridden for the whole bloody novel solving a mystery uh so possibly possibly i could have a an academic translator who discovers the uh buried within a, a poem the uh instructions to find a buried treasure maybe i don't know that sounds like a who knows <laughs> well you, you could have a, a a new whole new academic career hey that'd be fun i'll be in the yeah. right town for it uh, i know Tuesday. right I'm going to be a sure half mile walk from the University of Arizona, so I'm going to keep my my options open. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm wondering, you know, you mentioned some of your influences. Do you, do you have any influences that might surprise your fans? I you know do. something whether it's um, you know it doesn't necessarily have to be a writer. It could be it could be uh, movies, TV, people walking down the street. <laughs> well, I think. Let me see. Yes, I'm going to give you a mixture. Thanks for allowing me to do a blend here. Uh, one of the biggest influences for me was uh, Ira Levin. Uh, mm. Not Rosemary's Baby. I'm thinking of the boys from Brazil and the mystery mm. he wrote. Uh, it was just incredible. I mean, his, his plotting is so tense. It's no wonder that Stephen King calls him the, the greatest uh, Swiss, Swiss watchmaker of you know, suspense writers. Uh, he was a big influence. I read couple of his books, I reread 40, 50 times until I had underlined every single line in the book, and they were just falling apart from what I, my studies. Uh, Lawrence Sanders, I mentioned, because I think he, he's hard-boiled, but he's tough, but he's also extremely elegant. And every now and then, he'll come across on a page or every other page, just a sentence that drops your jaw, and you say, wow, that is beautiful. Uh, one of the actors who has influenced me the most, I mean, uh, He's appeared in one form or another in several books as Lee Marvin. I'm just amazed mm. by an amazing actor. Uh, he just had this presence about him. Uh, just He doesn't make a big deal of it. In fact, he would have been, I guess, if he were younger today, and I guess he'd have to put on 40, 50 pounds of muscle, but he would have been ideal for <laughs> Jack Reacher. <laughs> Definitely. He, well, that Marine. he was a Marine, and it shows in the way he moves, the way he acts, the way he talks. Yeah, a lot of actors from that time, they were in the military, so it, it kind of transferred. 
Who yes. translated? Uh, that's really about it. I'm a huge fan of, oh, I just like tightly plotted. I like, I like films and TV that combine, uh, you know, humor and action. Uh, I'm mm. a huge fan of the Mission Impossible series here yeah. with Tom Cruise. The uh, sting operations that appear in several of the Bob books have been inspired by the Mission Impossible movies. That's Those all I can fun. think of right now. Well, I'm wondering, um, you know, at the end of the day, when you've finished, um, you, f- you finished a chapter or maybe when you finished a book, do you, do you do anything to relax and recharge and rejuvenate for the next work? I do. I, uh, between books, I just keep on going. I'll jump from one book into the outline for another. I, I enjoy that period. That's relaxing for me. I'm going to be spending three months at least asking questions and filling my moleskin notebooks. So, I mean, I've got, uh, that's a good, good way for me to recharge, but also I have, uh, I've had to pull back a little bit because of a strained back and the, the knee operation, but I have my kettlebells for keeping in shape mm. um, and uh, studying Latin. I mean, that, that is uh, the, the big reboot for me. I love it. I spend at least an hour, sometimes two a day, just uh, working on, on learning the language. What, what else can I do when I, I don't drink or smoke or do drugs? <laughs> That's right. What do you do, right? <laughs> As the old song says. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'm wondering, uh, do you have a website? Um, how, how do people get in touch with you? you have social media? I, social media? Signals? I have a, uh, a page <laughs> on Facebook. I think my, my address is, my email address is listed there. I just, uh, within the past four or five months, I did set up a website because I wanted to, I originally was just planning to set up a blog for uh, reviews. But I learned that, you know, for a little little investment, I could also have a website to go with it. The website I'm still working on, but it comes under, uh, they can look under Rev McGrath's Rogue, Rogue Reviews. Hmm. Well, we're going to have, you will put all that stuff up on the website so uh, listeners can find it with one click. <laughs> right. And they could easily visit my uh, uh, Amazon author page uh, hmm. just to see, see the, the books listed in order with little descriptions of them and everything. Uh, but yeah, do check out the website, uh, Reb McGrath's Rogue Reviews. What do you think of the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, the new way of, I mean, I know it kind of brought you back in through, through ebooks and stuff, but anybody and their brother can, uh, write uh, a review <laughs> of your yes. books and stuff. How, how do you feel about that? Uh, do, do you, um, usually, uh, uh, read your reviews or uh, do you stay away from them? I've looked at them so far. I've been, I guess so far I've been blessed in not having that many. Uh, for one of the Seattle Bop books, I got close to 50 reviews uh, and they were all four and five stars, but I know that the risk is involved there. I don't, one thing I don't do is, is free giveaways, hmm. free giveaways. Uh, even lowering the price to 99 cents is inviting disaster because you're getting people that probably aren't going to read the book and they're probably not going to like anything you write. Yes. Um, I mean, that's that can really that can kill a career. So I'm careful with that. I I, I watch reviews. I'll keep an eye on it. But I guess uh, Hemingway said, uh, you know, if you're going to read and and like your good reviews, you've got to at least consider the bad ones. And I I try to keep an open mind if uh, somebody comes out and trashes the little book of poetry. But uh, then again, the price is price is important. Uh, I did not print the deliberately did not print the. the, the Latin book, 
as a Kindle book because it would have, I would have sold it then for you know, 99 cents or $1.99. That would have invented, uh, invited disaster. Uh, even though I make it clear that these are not literal translations of the original poem, they're, they're performances, they're renditions. Um, so you've you got to be prepared. It's, uh, it, it's a mixed bag, Dave. Bad yeah, well, it seems like price does matter today. You know, in, in people's, in how they, in how, how they view uh, the story or the book or whatever you're putting out there? Well, price does matter. The other thing, too, is to keep in mind, uh, I don't remember her name, but the huge uh, self-publishing sensation. She went from uh, just not, just a total Kindle author to the point where her sales were so enormous that uh, she landed a huge publishing deal with a major publishing house. But that's less likely to happen if you don't have, I think, those numbers. Uh, I think publishers will be put off. I mean, in my case, I don't see it being a, a huge problem. The fact that they've appeared on uh, Kindle to start with because my sales are not enormous. I mean, mm. I'm doing the best work I'm capable of doing, and I'm not pandering to an audience. I'm not writing down so that I, I can jack up my sales, and I'm not pricing so that I can get better numbers. I don't think in terms of units, I think in terms of uh, quality and, and the books. So uh, one day, an agent out there, or a publisher, I really believe this, is gonna come around and say, hey, it doesn't matter if these books have sold, these books are terrific, so what if they sold a couple hundred copies or even a couple thousand? That's, that's not a deal breaker. It shouldn't be. No, it shouldn't be. And I'm sure it feels better, you know, uh, doing stuff that, that you want to do, that you love, and, and not writing to the market. I, I, I believe that. And I think most of us can tell if somebody's just, you know, grinding them out at the speed of light. Uh, it's, there's a huge difference between, I think readers are, most readers out there, I, I, I think, are sensitive. Even if they don't know the technical terms for a technique that a writer is using, I think they could tell the difference between a book that's been carefully thought out, carefully polished, carefully prepared, and all of these things, as opposed to something that was just turned, okay, three months have passed, I got I to get on the next book. Mm. At least that's, I, that's what keeps me going. I like to think that that's true. Yes, it absolutely is. And, uh, well, it looks like we are about out of time. Uh, we have been here today with uh, the author, Reb McGrath. He uh, has written a book called uh, The Rock. Well, he's written a whole bunch of books, but the uh, book we've been talking about today is The Rock of Bop, a Seattle Bop mystery book three. You have to go out there and get that book now. And uh, thanks for being here, Reb. Dave and Al, thanks very much for having me on the show. I've had a good time. Thank you. You're waking me up again. <laughs> okay. The next time I'm on the show, then we can get into my second marriage. <laughs> there we go. Okay, guys. Thank you. Tired of wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service? Go to our website and look for the Martino Movie Reviews. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. 
You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.